podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm going to use this episode to provide an update on our Primavera and Femenile teams, Unfortunately, with how busy the schedule has been, I haven't been able to cover the Primavera and Femenile as much as I would have liked to, at least not on the podcast. You can find all the match reviews on our website at fortanapolipress.com. And as usual, this episode is brought to you by Betstamp, the world's first verified buy-sell marketplace for sports betting picks. So let's start with the Primavera, who have played 12 matches so far in the 2022-23 Primavera Uno campaign. For those of you who might not follow the Primavera, there are 18 teams in the league, so this season is 34 matches long. That means we are just over a third of the way through the current season. The Azzurini currently have a record of 3 wins, 3 draws, and 6 losses, so we've earned a total of 12 points. That puts us in 14th position in the table, which is just outside of the relegation playout zone. So again, for those of you who aren't aware, three teams are relegated every season and three teams are promoted. The bottom two teams are automatically relegated, while the third relegation team is determined by a two-legged playoff between the teams that finish third and fourth from the bottom of the table. Currently, those two clubs are Inter, who are only one point behind us, and Sampdoria, who are on 9 points, which is 5 points behind us. The two teams currently in the automatic relegation places are Udinese and Cesena, who are both on only 4 points. Now, we've already played and beaten both Cesena and Udinese, so barring a really poor run of form by Napoli, or perhaps a really strong run of form by either of those teams, which seems unlikely, I think we should be able to stay comfortably away from the automatic relegation spots, but I think like last season, we'll be competing with a few clubs to stay out of the relegation playoff. Last season, we made our lives far more difficult than we needed to. We lost the final two matches of the season, which hurt even more given that they were basically meaningless matches for our opponents, and that we only needed a single point between those two matches to guarantee our survival. Instead, we ended up tied with Lecce on 40 points, and because Lecce had a superior goal differential, we ended up playing in the relegation playoff against Genoa. Fortunately, we won the tie by an aggregate score of 4-2 to stay in the Primavera Uno. Now, our current position might sound concerning, but I'm actually far more optimistic today than I was about 5 or 6 weeks ago. We started the season with 6 losses in 7 matches. The only match we didn't lose was that win over Cesena that I mentioned a moment ago. We also finished the group stage of the UEFA Youth League with a record of no wins, 1 draw, and 5 losses. And that was one of the biggest concerns that I had at the time. This team was not built to play in multiple competitions. 
Credit to Nicolo Frustalupi, he rotated heavily for those Youth League matches, which is largely why our record in the Youth League was so poor, but we still used our regular starters as substitutes in those matches, meaning they were still playing more than they would have had we not been playing in the Youth League. Now, the UEFA Youth League is basically the youth version of the UEFA Champions League, so you might be wondering why we were even playing in the Youth League Given that we just barely survived last season, we certainly weren't anywhere near the top four of the league. The reason is because the teams that qualify for the youth league are determined by the placement of the senior teams, not by the placement of the youth teams. So, because Napoli's senior team finished in the top four last season, Napoli's youth team played in the youth league this season. So I think those additional matches took a physical toll on the players, especially considering that much of the squad turned over in the summer. We basically lost all of our best players who graduated to play professional football. I'll come back to them in a second. But first, I want to comment on how well this team has recovered and why my optimism has been restored. Since we were mathematically eliminated from the youth league, which if I recall correctly was after our fourth consecutive loss in the tournament, we've had a record of two wins, three draws, and one loss. In other words, nine of the 12 points we've earned thus far this season were earned in the last six rounds. We beat Bologna 3-0, drew Torino 1-1, drew Atalanta 0-0, beat Udinese 1-0, lost to Hellas Verona 1-0, and came from behind to draw Sampdoria 1-1. We've also made some useful signings since the start of the season to bolster the squad. We signed Jorge Alastui and Noah Mutanda both on free transfers. Alastui was a highly rated product of La Masia in Barcelona, but he was released after some concerning injuries. I think it's only a matter of time before Alastui breaks into the starting 11 because he is simply too good to be on the bench. The question is where do you play him? It would have to be as one of the two attacking midfielders which I would say is more vulnerable at the moment, or as one of the two central midfielders, that's his more natural position, but both of our central midfielders are playing well at the moment, so that change may not happen until one of those two players fall out of form. Mutanda, who goes by the name Zula for obvious reasons, was a product of the Schalke youth system before he was released. Now, I mentioned the key players that left, so what I'm going to do is comment on how those players have been doing since they've moved on to professional football, and I'll provide an update on how their replacements have performed for the Primavera. But before I do that, let me just quickly run through Nicolo Frustalupi's preferred starting 11, just to paint the picture for you. He lines up in a 3-4-2-1 formation with Valerio Boffelli in goal, Nosa Oberettin, Daniel Hisai, and Benedetto Barba are his back three. Francesco Gioielli and Gennaro Iaccarino play as the two central midfielders, with Davide Acampa on the left and Lamin Ninge on the right. Pasquale Maranzino and Antonio Spavone are the two trequartisti, and Leonardo Russo is the striker. Okay, so let's start with last season's goalkeeper, Huberti Dasiak. He's probably someone most are familiar with, or at least you might recognize his name, because you would have seen it on all of the squad lists for the Champions League this season. Idasiak trained with the senior team in the summer, and Luciano Spalletti decided to keep the pole with the senior team. With Alex Meret and Salvatore Sirigu, the clear number one and number two in the squad, Idasiak and Davide Marfella have alternated as the number three. 
Marfella has been the usual number three in Serie A, while Idasek has been the number three in the Champions League, and both were in the squad when Sirigu suffered from a muscle injury. His replacement at the Primavera is Valerio Bofelli, who has been really impressive in goal. In fact, even our backup Primavera keeper Claudio Turi has impressed me in the games that he's played in. It's not easy being the keeper for this Napoli side because we do concede our fair share of chances, yet we've only conceded 17 goals, which is about mid-table in terms of goals conceded. So we seem to be pretty well set as far as the goalkeeper position goes. Another player that moved on in the summer was central defender Davide Costanzo. He was loaned to Alessandria in Serie C Girone B. Alessandria are currently 5th from the bottom of the table, so they're not doing particularly well, but that's not on Costanzo. He has yet to play a single minute in Alessandria's 13 matches so far this season. Costanzo's replacement is Nosa Oberetin, who was one of the three ex-Milan players that joined Napoli this summer. I've been very impressed with Oberetin's play so far. I would say, at minimum, we haven't gotten any worse with him at the back. And while the sample size is still fairly small, I think by the end of the season we'll conclude that Oberetin has actually been an upgrade over Costanzo. Not that we signed defenders to score goals, but Costanzo scored four total goals in his three seasons at Napoli, one in the 1920 Youth League, one in the 2020-21 campaign, which was when we were in the Primavera Due, and one last season in Primavera Uno. Oberetin has already scored two goals this season, he scored the only goal in our 5-1 defeat to Roma, and he scored the winner in our 3-0 victory over Bologna, so Oberetin is on pace to score more goals in one season than Costanzo did during his entire time at Napoli, but who knows, maybe he won't score again for the rest of the season, which could well be the case because he is a defender. But defensively, he has been very solid. He is a big body, but he is also fairly quick, which makes him very difficult to get past. Frustalupi definitely recognizes the talent there. After the first two matches where he played about 65 minutes, he's played the full 90 minutes in all but one Primavera Uno match this season. The only match he didn't play the full 90 was that Bologna match he scored in, but he still played 85 minutes in that one as well. Let's move on to the midfield next, where we lost two players who I liked quite a lot in Giuseppe D'Agostino and Colisacco. D'Agostino was loaned to Juve Stabia in Serie C Girone C, where he's predominantly been a substitute right winger. He played only 107 minutes through the first 11 rounds, but he has started the last two rounds for Juve Stabia, and they've gone quite well. He played 64 minutes in their 1-0 victory against Giuliano, and then he played the full 90 minutes and scored both goals in Juve Stabia's 2-0 win against Virtus Francavilla, which was surely the highlight of his career so far. The first was a clever backheel flick after making a smart run towards the first post. That was the more flashy goal, but it was the second one that caught my attention. Daniela Mignanelli played a cross-field long ball over the top to D'Agostino on the right wing, which is where he's been playing for Juve Stabia. D'Agostino took the ball down really well on his chest, and then with his next touch, he smacked the ball first time on the volley across the face of the goal and into the side netting at the far post. Now, if you want to see those goals, head over to my Twitter page. I posted the link to a YouTube video that has the highlights from that match. 
Now, for me, D'Agostino didn't have his best season last year, at least not initially. He was a crucial part of the team that earned promotion back to Primavera Uno two seasons ago, but he struggled out of the gates last season. He started the season as one of the two trequartisti in Frustalupi's 3-4-2-1, but almost by happenstance rather than for tactical reasons, Frustalupi moved him to the right wing back, and that seemed to really help D'Agostino. I say almost by happenstance because two of our wingbacks, Matteo Marquisano and Musa Mane, both got hurt at the same time. Frustalupi does deserve credit though because Domenico Didona was the regular starter in that position before then. D'Agostino scored five goals and added five assists last season, half of which were in the final 11 matches of the season. His replacement was initially Marquisano, but has been Lamina Nyinge since we signed him. Now, if you're looking simply at goal production, Lamine would appear to be a downgrade to D'Agostino because he hasn't scored or assisted all that much, but they're very difficult to compare because they have very different characteristics. D'Agostino is a small, skillful player, he's very good on the dribble. Lamine provides more size and pace and plays more like a true wing back than D'Agostino did. That's why D'Agostino is playing on the right wing for Juve Stabia because he's much more of an attacker then he is a defender. Lamina gets up and down the right wing and I would suggest contributes much more in defense than D'Agostino did. The same can be said of the other change in the midfield. Coli Sacco has been loaned to Provercelli in Serici Girone Chi. Sacco was a very important player for us last season, particularly in the second half of the season. He scored three goals and tallied three assists last season and all three goals were scored from match day 22 onward. More importantly, he scored in each leg of the playoff and both were very important goals. He scored an 89th minute equalizer in the first leg, which was played in Genoa, and then he scored the match winner in the second leg, which was played in Napoli. Sacco has been a regular starter for Provercelli this season, right from the first game, and his stats suggest that he's continued to perform well. He has one goal, one assist, and five yellow cards, which is befitting of a holding midfielder like him. It certainly helps that Provercelli play with the same formation as Frustalupi. Now, sometimes Provercelli play in a 3-4-3 instead of a 3-4-2-1, but the back three and the midfield four is the same, which I'm sure made it easier for Sacco to transition to playing professional football. Now, the reason I say the change with Sacco in the midfield is similar to with D'Agostino and Lamine is because Sacco's replacement also has very different characteristics. For those of you who haven't seen Sacco play, he is an absolute beast of a player. He's 1.97 meters tall, that's 6 foot 5.5 for our North American listeners. He basically looks like a basketball player playing in the midfield. I've previously compared him to Simi playing at striker in Serie A and Serie B. His replacement is a player who was already in the squad, Francesco Gioielli. I don't have Gioielli's exact height, but he's significantly smaller than Sacco. If I had to guess, I'd say he's about 1.7 meters tall or about 5 foot 8 or thereabouts. So he doesn't give you the size, length, or strength that Sacco gives you. It's sort of like the reverse of D'Agostino and Lamina. In this case, the replacement player is the more skillful one, and that's changed the dynamic of the midfield because the other central midfielder is still Gennaro Iaccarino. When Iaccarino was paired with Sacco, Iaccarino was much more of an attacking player and Sacco was much more of a defending player, 
aside from onset pieces. Whereas with the Yaccarino Gioielli partnership in the center of the current midfield, both players attack and both players defend, so they have to constantly communicate to ensure that neither of them gets caught out of position either in the attack or in defense. As a result of that, Gioielli has contributed more goals this season than Sacco did last season. He's already up to 4 goals on the season, and even though he lacks the height of Sacco, two of his goals were scored with his head. What I love about Gioielli is he is a tenacious player, he is a feisty player, and he's certainly not afraid of a good fight. And I must admit, I was completely wrong about him when I voiced my concerns about the Primavera squad earlier in this season. I simply did not think Gioielli was strong enough to be in the starting 11, but he has quickly proven me wrong and I'm very happy to see that he is flourishing. A quick comment on Yaccarino since I mentioned his name a moment ago, he's having a nice little season as well and could prove to be one of the key players from this season that we loan out to a Serici club next season. I quite like him as a player, he has 3 goals and 3 assists in all competitions, all 3 of those goals were scored from the spot, so he's become a bit of a penalty kick specialist and I think I have a bit of a soft spot for him because he missed the majority of last season due to injury. Even though we play with a midfield 4, his play reminds me of the play of Stanislav Lobotka both in terms of his size and his skill on the ball. Now obviously at 19 years of age, he's nowhere near the quality of a player like Lobotka, but I would love to see him loan to a club next season that will play him as a regista, as a deep lying playmaker, because I think he could thrive in that role. Okay, let's close the Primavera review with a look at the changes in the attack, which is where we had the most change. Not including Giuseppe D'Agostino, who I've already spoken about, three attacking players moved on this summer and all three were very important to Napoli's attack last season, Antonio Vergara, Antonio Cioffi, and Giuseppe Ambrosino. Let's start with the two trequartisti Vergara and Cioffi. Vergara scored 2 goals and 11 assists in 27 appearances last season. He missed 5 matches early in the season due to a hip injury and took a little bit of time to get back to form. Both his goals and all but 1 assist were recorded from match day 16 onwards, so roughly in the second half of the season. He also added 2 assists in the relegation playoff against Genoa. Vergara played so well that even Napoli fans who only follow the senior team became very familiar with his name, people were posting video clips of his play on social media and for good reason. He was playing at a really high level, in some cases he was making very difficult passes look easy and in other cases he was making passes that the average eye simply does not see. That form seems to have carried over into his professional career, he's currently on loan at Provercelli in Serie C Girona A. He started on the bench but very quickly worked himself into the starting 11, it only took him 4 games to be exact. He played the entire second half against Renate and hasn't looked back ever since, playing from the first minute in Provercelli's last 9 matches. That was good enough to get the call up to Italy's U20 team for the current international break, though he did not feature in Italy's 2-1 victory over Romania in the 8 Nations Cup. Antonio Trofi is the other trequartista who graduated to playing professional football 
He's currently on loan at Pontedera, where he seems to be doing okay. He missed two matches due to illness, but has appeared in all nine other matches. He started six, and in the matches he did not start, he either came on at halftime or five minutes after the break, so he is playing plenty of minutes there. He scored his first professional goal against Ancona, which was only the second match of the season. His second goal was a beautiful header in Pontedera's 3-2 win over Alessandria. That's fairly consistent with how he played for the Primavera last season. He was generally very good, but missed the odd game here and there due to injury, including the final few matches of the season, and probably didn't score as often as we might have hoped for. The players that have been filling in for Vergara, Chofi, and D'Agostino when he played in that position have been Pasquale Maranzino and Antonio Spavone. Spavone was already quite comfortable in that role as he was the alternative to Chofi when Chofi was hurt and D'Agostino was playing at right wing back at the end of last season. Spavone had a very strong start to the current campaign scoring twice in our first three matches. He also scored twice against Rangers in the youth league. I think he's a good player, but he's not a great player. If we compare him to Vergara, since that's the position he's playing in on the right side of the pair of Trequartisti, then we have to say that that's a downgrade. The other Trequartista is Pasquale Maranzino, who I've previously spoken highly of. Like Iacarino, he's the type of player that I think would fit well into Luciano Spalletti's system because he likes to play the ball quickly. If I had to compare him to another senior player, or at least a former senior Napoli player, I'd say his play reminds me a little bit of the play of Fabian Ruiz. He plays higher up the pitch than Fabian did, but Maranzino has a similar build to Fabian, and he likes to go for goal from distance like Fabian did. Now, if we were to assess how this season's Trequartisti stack up to last season's, I would also say that that is a downgrade as a pair. The easiest way to demonstrate that is actually to compare Spavone to Chofi, because even though they play on different sides of the pitch, they have very similar characteristics. Now, personally, I think Chofi was better for the Primavera than Spavone is now, but I'd go so far as to call them equals. That leaves Maranzino and Vergara, who are difficult to compare because they are different types of players, but there is no denying how good Vergara is and that Maranzino is not contributing nearly as much as Vergara did. Now maybe he'll get there, Maranzino is 18 years old so he could play another season with the Primavera, and at that age, one additional year of experience makes a huge difference. But currently, with only 2 assists in 10 matches, Maranzino is simply not filling those boots. The last player to depart this summer is arguably the most important one, and that is striker Giuseppe Ambrosino. Ambrosino was last season's Primavera Uno Capocannoniere, scoring 19 goals, 20 if you include the goal he scored in the playoff, and adding 5 assists. He was just a lethal striker, he had a ridiculous conversion rate, basically if you gave him a chance he was going to take it, and what was most impressive was that he could score in a variety of different ways, from close range to long range with either foot and with his head, and from open play or from the set piece. Of all the players we loaned out this summer, he was the only player we loaned to a Serie B club, but that might have actually been a mistake. Ambrosino has yet to play a single minute for Como in 13 matches this season. Perhaps they should be playing him more because Como are currently third from the bottom of the table and for a while they were dead last. 
I'm hoping that his current loan is for only half a season, which is fairly common for Napoli loanees. If so, then I hope that Napoli recall the loan and loan Ambrosino out to another club who is actually going to play him, even if that is in Serie C. It's great that he was loaned to a Serie B club because the football played in Serie B is of a higher quality and presumably the training is as well, but he's currently only getting half the benefit. He has not played any competitive football in Serie B. So for me, I'd much rather he go to a Serie C club and play there regularly than sit on the bench in a Serie B club. If we wanted him to sit on the bench, we could have kept him with the senior team of Napoli where he could be training and learning under Spalletti. And yet, he still scored a gorgeous goal with Italy's U20 team in the 2-1 victory over Romania that I mentioned earlier. You can find that goal online if you'd like to see it, but that just tells you how good Ambrosino is. Even after not playing competitively for months, he's fit and capable of scoring a goal like that. Ambrosino's replacement has been Leonardo Rossi, who's another player that previously played in the Milan youth system. I like Rossi, but let's be honest, he is no Ambrosino. He scored four goals in all competitions, three in the UEFA Youth League, and one in the Primavera Uno. Two of the goals in the Youth League were from the penalty spot. Even if you count the Youth League goals, he's on pace to score eight goals on the season, which is less than half of what Ambrosino scored last season. So he has definitely been a downgrade, not entirely due to any fault of his own. Again, Ambrosino is just very, very difficult to replace. That said, if we want to comfortably stay up, that is, if we want to comfortably avoid the relegation playoff, we're going to need Rossi to score more goals. We can't keep relying on guys like Gioielli to score. I'll close part 1 by quickly mentioning a few other players who have played smaller roles. The third player we brought in from Milan is Landry Boni, who's been a useful substitute on the right side of the midfield. Lorenzo Russo has been another useful substitute for one of the two trequartisti and he's left footed so he gives you a bit of a different look. He also delivers a quality set piece so when he is on the pitch he often takes the corner kicks and the free kicks. We also brought in Bilal Sally, who was very good for Genoa last season. He hasn't played much but if Rossi doesn't score more I could see Frustalupi trying Sally at striker instead. So that is my update on the Primavera. The boys are off for the international break as well, so they will not return until early January when we take on Milan. That will do for part one. In part two, I'll provide an update on the Femenile. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Betstamp. With the Betstamp app, you can compare betting lines across multiple different sportsbooks in your region, which is the only way to get an edge in online sports betting. You can also buy and sell picks from verified accounts, and best of all, the app is free. There are no fees, no royalties, and no commissions. Just download the Betstamp app and be sure to use referral code NAPOLI when you create your account. Okay, so next, let's talk about the Femenile. This review will be a little bit different than the Primavera review. I'm not going to spend too much time looking at players who moved on and how they've done, because for the second consecutive season, we turned over nearly the entire squad in the offseason. Now, 
It's important to appreciate that the women's game is still growing. It's heading in the right direction, but there is still a long way to go to get it to where it needs to be, which is a self-sustaining league. We're starting to see that in the major women's leagues with England, USA, and Spain leading the way. Italy is improving. This season was the first season that Serie A Femminile became a professional league. That brings really important benefits for the players and for the clubs. It means that player salary caps increase. It means that players get benefits. So for example, they might not be released by their club if they suffer a major injury. What that does is it allows the players to focus solely on football. Just to put it into context, the salary cap for women's players before they became professionals was 30,000 euros a year. Now, for a teenager, that's a decent salary living in Europe, but obviously it pales in comparison to the salaries in the men's game. Now, that's not a knock on the men's game. The salaries are at those levels because of the revenue that the men's game generates. As the women's game grows and gets more investment, women's salaries will increase as well. In fact, we're starting to see that. A number of women footballers make four or $500,000 a year. Again, the U.S. is leading the way with players like Carly Lloyd, who plays for Gotham FC in the NWSL, Alex Morgan and Marta, who play with the Orlando Pride, Julie Ertz with the Chicago Red Stars, and Christine St. Clair with the Portland Thorns. But we've also seen some high salaries in Europe, Samantha Kerr with Chelsea, and Ada Hagerberg, Amandine Henri, and Wendy Renard with Lyon. Lyon has been one of the front runners in terms of growing the women's game. But these are the top of the top in the women's game. Most players are not making that high of a salary. So when you think back to the 30,000 euro salary cap, a young player in Canada or the US, for example, might choose to be, say, an accountant instead of a footballer, where they can potentially earn a higher salary and they can get benefits like maternity leave. That means there is talent that is possibly not being realized. As some of those barriers are removed, more players will focus solely on football, so the quality of the players in Serie A will grow. That will raise the overall quality of the league, which means the football will be more competitive and therefore more entertaining, and that is the most important thing for the growth of women's football. People need to be entertained by the game. They need to want to watch it. If they are, they will buy tickets to watch matches, and as more and more people desire to watch the game, the value of TV rights goes up, and as soon as that happens, the women's game will grow exponentially. The good news is, I think we're almost at that point. The women's Euros is the perfect example of that. It smashed all kinds of attendance records, including the opening match, which had an attendance of almost 69,000 fans, and the total attendance for the entire competition, which was 575,000. Now, the international game, whether it's the Women's Euros or the Women's World Cup, has always drawn strong attendance and viewership numbers. But now, club competitions, including the Women's Champions League, are drawing huge numbers as well. The Champions League final in March between Barcelona and Real Madrid drew 91,553 people, which was a record attendance for any match in the history of women's football, both international or at club level. The previous record was 90,185 for the 1999 World Cup final between USA and China at the Rose Bowl in the United States. So the women's game is growing, but as you might have expected, it's growing at a slower rate in Italy. I mentioned that Serie A Femminile is now a professional league, but Serie B Femminile is not. 
That brings me back to Napoli and the turnover at the squad. After being relegated from Serie A last season, it wasn't terribly shocking that there was a max exodus of players in the offseason. Only four players remained from last season, Paola Di Marino, who remains our only Napolitana player and captain, Saratui and Claudia Mauri in the midfield, and Romina Pina up top. The rest of the squad is entirely new. We brought in Matilda Copetti, Sabrina Tasselli, and Chiara Repetti to play in goal. In defense, we signed Eleonora Oliva, Melissa Nozzi, Martina Di Bari, Antonia Dulcic, Aurora De Sanctis, Melissa Tumi, and Carminia Botta. In the midfield, we signed Michela Franco, Lucia Strisciulio, Giulia Ferrandi, and Antonella Albertini. And finally, up top, we signed Adriana Gomez, Sara Tamborini, Serena Landa, Samia Adam, and Roberta Iliano. But it wasn't only the squad that changed, we also had significant turnover at the management level. At the end of last season, Lello Carlino stepped down as president, but remained with the club as an honorary president. He was replaced by Alessandro Maiello, who was previously president of the youth sector, and is the CEO of one of the club's main sponsors, Idea Bellezza. Biagio Seno was hired to be the club's first ever sporting director, and he works alongside general manager Marco Zwingauer. That now makes sense given the huge turnover in players I mentioned a moment ago. At the same time, the club announced a new head coach in Dmitry Lipov, who brought with him a wealth of experience and a track record of success with PSG in France and with many clubs elsewhere. A few days later, we were introduced to his coaching staff, assistant coach Pasquale Liano, goalkeeper coach Andrea Carboneschi, and team manager Manuela De Luca. Two weeks later, the club announced the full technical and health staff, which had been overhauled as well. So this really was a whole new team from top to bottom. Despite all the change, Lipov and company seem to have pieced everything together nicely, they went on the club's usual retreat in the mountains of Rivizonduli, which is a small village in L'Aquila, which is in Abruzzo, which is not too far from Napoli. They returned ready to kick off the 2022-23 campaign, starting with our first match of the group stage of the Coppa Italia Femminile. If you're not familiar with the structure of the Coppa Italia Femminile, it starts with eight groups of three clubs, with clubs from Serie A and Serie B. Each club plays a match against each of the other two clubs in their group, one match at home and the other away, and then the winner of the group advances to the knockout stage. I don't particularly like that format. I don't think you can truly determine who the best team of the group is from only two matches. If you have an off day in either of those two matches, that can be the end of your competition right there. Also, I'm not sure how they determine which match you play at home and which match you play away, but that can make a big difference as well. And it's not like there isn't space in the calendar for it. There are only 10 teams in Serie A Femminile and 16 in Serie B Femminile. And it's not uncommon for matches to be two weeks apart, so there's plenty of room to play two additional matches. Fortunately, we got a fortuitous draw for the group. We avoided the two groups that have two Serie A clubs, Group C with Roma and Como, and Group D with Inter and Parma. And the Serie A club that we did draw, Pomigliano, is definitely not the strongest. If I'm not mistaken, they were one of the clubs that was promoted before the start of last season. They're currently 7th in Serie A with a record of 2 wins, 1 draw, and 6 losses. The other team in our group is Tavagnaco, who is a decent Serie B side, but a Serie B side nonetheless. 
In fact, that was the first match that we played this season, which we won 2-1 in Friuli Venezia Giulia. Adriana Gomez carried her preseason form into this match, opening the scoring early in the first half and then doubling our lead early in the second half. We conceded a late consolation goal but Napoli controlled the tempo for the majority of that match, so the goal was of little consequence. After the match, Lucia Strisciulio took a team selfie in the locker room, which has become a bit of a fun ritual we do now after every win, and fortunately, there have been plenty of wins. But before I get to the Serie B campaign, let me just round off where we stand in the Coppa Italia. The win over Tavagnaco put us in a good position to advance from the group stage. As I said, with the entire group stage consisting of only two matches, you generally need at least four points to advance. Unfortunately, we are going to need six points to advance. That's because Pomigliano absolutely pummeled Tavagnaco 6-1 on match day two of the Coppa Italia. So we'll need to beat Pomigliano when we play them on January 8th in Napoli. A draw would see us eliminated from the competition due to an inferior goal differential. The four players who I mentioned earlier that remained with the club, Di Marino, Mauri, Saratu, and Pina, will be familiar with Pomigliano having played against them in Serie A last season. So that is where we stand in the Coppa Italia. Next, I'll review our play in Serie B. We've played eight matches so far this season, and we really couldn't have asked for a better start. We opened the season with three consecutive wins, starting with a 3-2 win over Trento. We made our lives more difficult than we needed to in that match, having taken a 3-0 lead into the break on goals from Nozzi, Pina, and Ferrandi. However, despite conceding twice in the second half, we hung on for an important win away from home. We followed up that result with consecutive 1-0 victories at home. Adriana Gomes scored the lone goal in each of those matches. The first was a comfortable win over Apuliatrani despite the tight scoreline. Napoli were in complete control for the entirety of that match. The second was more difficult, but that was a battle between the top two clubs in the league at that point. It might not have been so close had Melissa Nozzi's header not crashed off the bar. Then again, Matilda Copetti made a couple of big saves to protect her clean sheet as well. So after three rounds, we were top of the table and we were the only team left in Serie B with a perfect record. Unfortunately, that streak ended the following round when we drew against Ravenna 1-1. The positive takeaway from that match was that Samia Adams scored her first of the season. It actually looked like we were going to record our third consecutive 1-0 victory, but Ravenna equalized with only 8 minutes remaining after some really poor goalkeeping from Tesselli. I'm not sure why Lipov decided to start Tesselli over Copetti for that match. In fact, Tesselli has been the starter since that Ravenna match. Copetti was very good in our first three matches, and as far as I'm aware, she's not injured, but I can only assume that either she is injured or the coaching staff had seen something in training that resulted in the change. Now, despite the draw, we remained top of the table tied with Lazio on 10 points, then we responded really well to our first drop points of the season with a 4-0 drubbing of Ternana. Gomez was the player of the match, scoring a brace and assisting on Sara Tamborini's first of the season. That brace brought Gomez's goal total to 4 in Serie B and 6 in all competitions. And then she scored again on Sunday, so she now has 5 goals in Serie B and 7 goals in all competitions. For me, that's been the key difference between this season and the previous two. In the previous seasons, we lacked a true number 9, a killer goal scorer. 
that was supposed to be Sola James, but she never really lived up to the hype. She's since moved on to Flamengo along with friend of the pod Kelly Cavaro, and they both seem to be doing really well. Sola scored a ridiculous brace a couple of weeks ago in a friendly against Universidad de Chile. We were also hoping that Depi Chatsi Nicolau and Evi Popedinova would supply goals, but they both missed a lot of time over the past two seasons due to injury. Chatsi Nicolau is actually doing really well for Lazio. I believe she has six goals, which is one or two goals behind the Capo Canoniere. So instead, we relied on Eleonora Goldoni to be our top goal scorer, but she wasn't a true striker. In fact, she wasn't a striker at all. She was an attacking midfielder who could also play occasionally on the wings. So goal scoring was a major reason for our struggles over the past two seasons. Two seasons ago, we scored 14 total goals and just barely survived. Last season, we scored a total of 13 goals and we were relegated. We've already surpassed those totals this season with 16 goals, and we've only played 8 matches. Granted, it's easier to score in Serie B than it is in Serie A, but like I said, it's also because we have more killer goal scorers. After Gomez, Romina Pina is our top scorer with 3 goals, so she's become a bit of a super sub. Back to our schedule, we followed up that 4-0 win over Ternana with a 1-0 win over Cesari Torres, but it certainly wasn't easy. We were a little bit flat in that match. We didn't see the true identity of this club, which is a team that likes to play out of the back, moves the ball quickly, presses high, and counter-presses. However, they did show their character and their resolve, scoring the winner in the 90th minute. Pina scored the winner, which was her second of three goals this season. It also showed that we're capable of playing in different formations. Pina was a substitute and she replaced a midfielder which facilitated a change in formation from the usual 4-3-3 to a 4-2-3-1. Pina's third of the season was in the following match. Unfortunately, it was not enough after we conceded twice to Chazena in the opening hour. That was our first loss of the season and because the top of the Serie B table is so tight, with that result, we dropped all the way down to 4th in the table. Lazio, who we were tied with at the top of the table, moved 3 points clear of us on 19 points. They're the only team in the league who have yet to lose a match. Meanwhile, by beating us, Cesena moved level with us on 16 points, as did Cittadella who tied Hellas Verona that round. But just like we saw after the draw to Ravenna, this team showed an ability to respond with a vengeance, beating Brescia 4-2. So both times we dropped points this season, we responded by scoring 4 goals. After we conceded a very soft penalty early in the match, Julia Ferrandi immediately scored the equalizer and it was a beautiful strike from outside the area. Sara Tui teed her up and she hit it first time with her left, curling the shot around the keeper. But what really stood out to me from this match was that the other 3 goals were scored from the set piece. Saratui scored another beautiful goal only a few minutes after Ferrandi's. In fact, Ferrandi won the free kick, so they sort of assisted on each other's goals. Tui went direct for a goal and picked the top corner off the upright and in. That shot was simply unstoppable. Adriana Gomez scored the third with a header from a free kick taken from the right side of the midfield. As I said, that was her seventh in all competitions. And then Claudia Mauri scored another direct free kick. She caught the keeper cheating a little bit too much on the right side of the goal 
and beat her with a shot that dipped into the bottom corner at the near post. So with that win, combined with Chizena's loss to Ternana, we moved back up to third in the table. We're still three points back of Lazio after they beat Apulia Trani, and we're still level with Cittadella after their 3-0 win over Genoa. So that is where we currently stand in Serie B. As I said, we've only played eight matches so far, so there is a long way to go. I'll close the Feminile review with a couple of individual player shoutouts. Melissa Nozzi has been an absolute rock at the back, both in terms of defensive play and in terms of reliability. She's the only player in the team who has played the full 90 minutes in all eight matches. We've conceded only seven goals on the season, which is an average of less than one goal per match. And frankly, at least one goal, if not two, were simply down to poor goalkeeping from Tesselli. I would suggest that Nozzi has been a key reason as to why our goals conceded is so low and she's also contributed in the attack scoring once and hitting the crossbar once as well. Another extremely reliable player at the back has been Aurora De Sanctis at left back. Other than the opening match of the season where she only featured for 20 minutes off the bench, she has played the full 90 minutes. Similarly, Sara Tui and Julia Ferrandi have played a ton of minutes after Nozzi and Adriana Gomes, who I've already spoken about. Ferrandi and Tui have played the most minutes. Ferrandi has played 688 minutes and Sara Tui has played 683 minutes. More importantly, they are both absolutely key to the Napoli midfield, as you might have gathered from the win on Sunday over Brescia. So that is where I will leave it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. You can also find more content over at our website, ForzaNapoliPress.com. We've been covering all of the action involving Napoli players during the international break, so be sure to check that out. I'm hoping to be back soon with another episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network.